Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. It is Tuesday, 21st of March, 9.15 a.m. Eastern here in New York. And my name is Ben Floyd and I will be your host for today. We have got a great lineup as usual. We've got George who's going to run through what's happening in the markets. David is going to run through macro and research. We've got the Fed this week. So he's going to run through what to look out for there. Greg is going to talk through some of the flows that we've been seeing on the desk. Uh, it was a slightly quieter weekend than uh, than two weekends ago. So um, still a lot going on, though. And then lastly, there's been a lot going on with DeFi, which has taken a bit of a back seat over the last few weeks. But there are a lot of things to run through there. If you look on your screen, if you're watching on YouTube, the QR code will take you to all of the amazing research that David and his team put out. That is free for you to view. So please check that out. And lastly, if you are listening to this on podcast, please don't forget to hit subscribe and you'll get alerted to each week when this comes out. But without further ado, George, over to you. What is happening in the markets? Another pretty uh, busy week, um, definitely some of, some of the most exciting price action um, I've seen in crypto recently. Uh, BTC had another very strong move, I would say up 13% on the week, um, pretty much trading on macro headlines as uh, Credit Suisse was uh, going down over the last couple of days. Um, and, you know, this BTC as digital gold narrative is really making a big comeback. So that hasn't really been uh, a topic um, that we've heard being discussed much in the last year or so. And that just comes on the back of uh, essentially negative real rates being um, expected uh, to, to be around for much longer than previously anticipated. And I think in such an environment, I mean, you're seeing BTC do well, um, gold uh, also doing pretty well, pretty close uh, to $2,000 there as well. Um, another interesting one in that context is if, uh, BTC dominance. So we are at uh, 48% and that's the highest level since April 2021. And that's not to say that we haven't been there over the last two years. So there were a couple of attempts to break that level, but um, all the time uh, it was rejected at 48%. So that's definitely a thing to watch. And uh, looking at some of the technicals in BTC as well, sort of the micro picture of the last couple of days, um, the momentum seems to be a little bit weaker now. Um, if you look at global total open interest across all coins, that has risen by $12 billion over the last 10 days. So back to pre-FTX levels again. Um, so obviously, as we discussed in last week's call, it, it does seem that this rally was heavily driven by derivatives. Um, so we might be a little bit vulnerable to some downside here, at least in the very short term. But it's definitely not to say that we can't hit um, 30k in BTC in, in the short term as well, uh, just given how uh, strong the, the narrative is. Um, and uh, I guess one one last interesting thing, uh, ETH, uh, which has been uh, the laggard of this move. So ETH BTC is actually down around 7% uh, on the week. Uh, so another thing to watch. Amazing. Thanks for that quick run through, George. So just would love to dig in a little bit here on, on BTC uh, and also bring Greg in as well. So we've seen some pretty incredible performance from BTC, both against the dollar, both against Ethereum as well, which I think has been particularly interesting. Um, and then we've also seen some great performance from uh, crypto related stocks in general, as well as gold hitting all time highs. Like how, how should we be thinking about this? Is this people fearing contagion in, in the banking system? Is this people thinking that we're going to be in a high inflation environment for a longer period? Like, is this thinking that crypto is the alternative to banking? Like, there's a few different narratives there. Like, many of them are getting kind of traction from various different client groups. Like, how, how should we think about this? Um, I think, so it's, yeah, there's two narratives that sort of build on each other. Um, one is the uh, alternative to the banking system. 
then that's why you know Bitcoin was originally created uh, after the great financial crisis. Um, so we're seeing that narrative certainly pick up, but we're also seeing this narrative around um, you know QE, whether it's here or likely to come, um, and what that could possibly do um, to the crypto markets. So I, I think you're seeing both of these kind of similar narratives uh, play out and kind of push the market higher here. And I mean, just just to add as well, um, obviously, as, as I mentioned, from a macroeconomic perspective, um, in addition to what Greg mentioned, obviously, with, um, you know, if they say if the Fed was to stay put or actually um, cut interest rates from here, so actually we're pricing a number of, of cuts, which um, I'm sure David will talk through later uh, in the second half of the year. Uh, but inflation actually remains uh, sticky. Um, then we will be in this negative real rates environment for uh, a considerable amount of time. So uh, that will definitely also be quite helpful for BC uh, prices. And, and it feels like we've seen this story before in some ways where you kind of get the rally led, is led by BTC to start with. Um, and, and then you kind of get the the second tier to start to rally and, and then it kind of moves into further assets further out on the risk curve. It, it, can we ex like, is that something that we should be looking out for? Is this or is this far more kind of macro driven? And really, it's like BTC is the gold narrative more so. So it's something that I'm looking for, um, because if you're going to have the start of a bull market or a sustained bull market, um, it really needs to be driven by by fundamentals. And when I think about, you know, crypto markets, I really want to see ETH and, um, you know, and other uh, similar gas tokens lead um, because the next bull market in my mind is going to be driven by bringing, you know, millions of people on chain. And once they get on chain, they're going to need, um, you know, gas to, to do things. Um, so, you know, what I'm watching for is, you know, when we start to see new money come in, start to see these applications um, be used more. Um, and I think you're going to start to see that, um, you know, in some of the tokens like ETH, you know, as they get accumulated uh, purely out of necessity. Yeah. Interesting. So, Sid, you're, you're the man that's kind of closest to, to DeFi and what's happening on chain. Like, what are some of the things that we should be looking out for? Like, where are we starting to see early traction? Um, at the moment, uh, the traction is all with L2s. Um, as, you know, I'm sure folks on the call have also, uh, you know, seen. Uh, you know, last week there was an announcement actually of the Arbitrum token airdrop. Uh, so Arbitrum is one of the most utilized L2s uh, in in the game right now. And uh, they announced that they would be launching their ARB token, uh, a majority of it actually going to the community, uh, like over 40, almost 50% of it. And uh, and uh, and 11% via an airdrop. Um, so it's a pretty significant airdrop uh, and there's going to be 10 billion ARB tokens. And, you know, it's kind of it lends itself to an easy comparison to Optimism, which is, uh, you know, the other roll up chain. Um, and so if you do comparable, you know, fully diluted valuations, it's looking like a pretty chunky airdrop, even for folks who just, you know, did the single activity of just bridging over to Arbitrum, you're, you're probably rewarded with around a thousand dollars. Wow. That's always always a nice uh, surprise to get that in your wallet. And, and what are people having to do to claim that? Do they have to go somewhere or is that just an airdrop that is automatically there? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a website that they have uh, where you can where you can click claim. Uh, it's I think on the 23rd, so later this week it'll go live. Yeah. Wow. 
So going back to George's chart, it doesn't feel like we're seeing the rallying outs yet. DeFi Pulse Index is, is down 7% or so, and, and ETH was uh, a loser versus BTC this week. But what, what else is happening, George, from a, a move perspective this, this week? Yes, yeah, so I think um, the, the question you actually asked before, Ben, I mean, that, that's related to this. I mean, basically, whether we will see altcoins start picking up um, after the BTC has sort of taken the lead in the rally is actually a very interesting one. Because, I mean, as you said, obviously, that's typically what used to happen uh, in bull markets. But um, another scenario, which is, you know, also worthwhile considering, which happened a number of times uh, during 2019 and 2020 as well, is basically altcoins just uh, pretty consistently uh, lagging for a period of time. And you mentioned this, DeFi polls is obviously not doing very well. And um, we are seeing it with uh, BTC dominance up, obviously. Altcoins overall have been lagging a little bit, but that's not to say that there aren't standouts. Um, so a couple to, to look at this week uh, is the CFX token, so the Conflux Network token, which was up 68% uh, on the week, so very uh, significant uh, outperformance there. And that's one of these um, China-related theme coins. Um, some describe it as a Chinese version of Medic, and uh, it's uh, the only regulatory compliant blockchain uh, in China, seemingly, with a couple of uh, really high profile partnerships, um, like, for instance, the Chinese equivalent of Instagram and also uh, China Telecom. So that one has done very well. STX uh, up 47%. Uh, so last time we were talking about that was a couple of weeks ago in the context of ordinals. Um, I think this time around, the rally is more just um, an extension of uh, Bitcoin primarily. And then lastly, obviously, um, the AI tokens. So we've seen um, a strong rally in uh, AI tokens and trending quite a lot towards the end of last year when ChatGPT3 uh, was released. And uh, just a couple of days ago, ChatGPT V4 was released. Uh, so uh, AGIX had also a pretty strong week on the back of that, up 21%. Thanks, George. So just back to CFX, what does regulatory compliant um, in China mean exactly? Well, I guess it's... Uh, a my interpretation of that would be that uh, it's allowed uh, by the the regulators in china um, because obviously they have very tight restrictions on blockchain and uh, crypto um hong kong hong kong was obviously opening up a little bit but that one seems to have the i mean, i wouldn't go as far and say the backing of uh, you know um let's say uh, regulators there but uh, they, they seem to tolerate it uh, i'm not sure what everyone else thinks you know, it's, just, it's, it's always just quite hard to understand what's going on on that side of the world. But um, get, there's almost like a parallel system in some ways with projects doing similar things. But as you said, like getting the approval of the, the right uh, the right people there is incredibly important. So interesting to see that. And then also, I guess, AGIX, we're, we're still uh, narrative theme driven in, in many ways, which is not not entirely surprising. But um, great. So moving on to some of the macro, David, we'd love to bring you in. We've got Fed this week. Um, so what should we be looking out for here? Yeah, I think this is going to be probably one of the more uncertain uh, Fed meetings that we've had in quite a long time. I think the distribution of possible outcomes is fairly wide because, of course, the Fed is trying to parse several pieces of information at the moment. We had the employment data like maybe two weeks ago, and you saw the unemployment rate was actually taking slightly higher to 3.6%. We then had inflation as well, which kind of shows core prices are still sticky. Services are still kind of trending higher. But obviously, the most important factor, of course, is how is the Fed going to interpret the current banking situation? Because that so far has been the strongest indication that the tightening cycle is having an impact on the real economy. So 
At this point, I would say the distribution of possible outcomes is fairly wide. The first is you could have a pause, uh, which I don't think would necessarily send the best signal to the market right now. It would kind of show that the Fed is, in fact, worried about financial instability. And that could perversely actually disrupt markets rather than actually uh, bolster it because many people think that big pause rates, actually, this would open the door to just the end of the tightening cycle and therefore things could rally. But there could be a lot of unintended consequences to that. But this is, in fact, what Goldman Sachs believes, that they're going to pause rates. The second is they could actually hike 25 base points uh, and then pause, which I think would implicitly recognize that conditions are, in fact, tightening because it's really difficult right now for a lot of banks, especially on the mid-tier side, to say extend themselves further in terms of their loan book or buy for the treasuries because they don't want to exacerbate any potential asset liability mismatches. Plus, you have a lot of uh, uh, customers who are rotating away from putting these deposits in the bank into, say, money market funds, which would then prompt a lot of these banks to go and take advantage of the reverse repo facility with the Fed, which actually tightens conditions further. Or you could just have people who are moving away from smaller banks into larger banks that they aren't quite as concerned about uh, as far as moving it from those small banks to a, a too big to fail kind of bank. So... You know, all of those things kind of imply tightening that the Fed wouldn't necessarily have to respond to. And then the last uh, possibility is that the Fed could actually hike 25 base points and say, listen, inflation is still a problem. Uh, we have to be committed to further rate hikes. We have to maintain our credibility. So actually, if anything, uh, you know, we introduced a bank term funding program that should theoretically resolve a lot of the problems in the bank system. We're OK. Let's just continue hiking rates. And there, you know, we're not going to see a terminal rate as high as it was previously. It's not going to be 6%, for example, but it's well within the realm of possibility. They could still do five and a quarter, five and a half percent. And keep in mind that they got to do the dot plot uh, a refresh in this meeting. So very likely we will see them need to change something because that's what they said two weeks ago. We don't know if that's still going to be true or not. So the least likely scenarios, however, uh, and I think it's fairly improbable, is that they're going to cut rates or that they're going to hike by twenty-five, uh, by 50 basis points. I think that's out, out the window by this point. And, and David, back to your kind of first thing around kind of the health of the banking system. Like, let me put this to you and would, would love uh, others' perspectives as well. Back in, in 2008, the JP Morgan um, took over Bear Stearns. Three months later, the, the, the market rallied sort of north of 15%, um, and then obviously came came back pretty aggressively. Like. Is, is, there, is there a path that, that we should be concerned about where there is additional contagion in the banks that we need to be thinking through? And, and that might be that might benefit crypto in fairness, as, like if the, the rally we've seen recently is as a result of that. But I guess I was curious how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, the parallel to the Bear Stearns situation is it's tough to actually know. Well, I mean, the one big difference, of course, is that you know, we've seen that situation happen. So I think we're better prepared for it. So of course, what happened with the Bear Stearns situation is that things started to rally. But six months later, then we had the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And that had a much steeper kind of fall. And we knew that there was a lot more systemic risks available here. So that, of course, presented a pretty major concern. We're already seeing signs that uh, the central banks, and I, I use the plural, uh, is, are, are quite responsive to this globally. And we saw that even just over the last few days with the Fed actually extending uh, its uh, swap lines with other central banks. So, 
you know, that had, of course, been there, but this was on a weekly kind of basis. They increased the frequency to a daily basis. And they say that's only going to go in for probably the next month or so into towards the end of April. Uh, but they're not suggesting that this could end. Like, this could be indefinite. We don't know what, whether they're going to extend that further when we get to April or whether it's going to end. Uh, but the point is that they know that they want to provide that liquidity facility for these banks. So they're not just dumping U.S. treasuries on the market, for example. Um, of course, this is having the effect of actually putting pressure on the U.S. dollar. Uh, but, you know, I, I think this is something that shows that a lot of central banks are much more tuned to the situation now and much more careful that these are not just banks that they believe are, that are too big to fail and therefore can't. They actually have seen this happen before. So I think they're they're much more prepared now to, to jump in if something happens. And can you just explain the difference between the, the BTFP facility and QE? Yeah, I, I think it's really crucial we understand that difference because I think a lot of people believe that both the bank term funding program, the BTFP, and quantitative easing uh, are, are both facilities that, you know, will introduce additional liquidity in the system and that, like, you know, liquidity conditions are going to improve as a result. But it's not quite the same because I think most people here is that, hey, the Fed's creating new dollars. So, like, that, that's great. Then it sounds exactly like QE. And that's not quite what's happening. And it's because of where those dollars are going. Because in QE, you have the Fed effectively creating those new dollars. Absolutely true. And they're using those new dollars to buy bonds. Um, and, you know, they, do they go to like these you know, major banks or these too big to fail banks? They buy these bonds from them. Um, and that increases then the bank's reserves. Uh, the banks then say, oh, we have higher reserves. Let's lend that out or, you know, let's use that in some way that we're actually increasing liquidity in the entire system. So hedge funds get some of that liquidity, wealthy clients, you know, they, they, they're pushing up prices as, as a result of that. BTFP, on the other hand, absolutely true. Fed is definitely creating new dollars. They are, of course, then lending that to distressed banks. And that's crucially the, the, the main difference, right? Because these banks effectively are like getting a lending facility from the Fed at par value rather than, say, mark to market, which would be considerably lower. Um, but the Fed is not buying these assets directly from those distressed banks. They are just providing those dollars in order to give them liquidity. So the difference then is that the Fed is lending money against these banks collateral, i.e. treasury bonds, mortgage bonds, and theoretically it's over a one-year period, but you don't get new liquidity in the system. Like those dollars theoretically remain within the financial markets because the banks are basically using them to keep themselves basically solve it effectively. So they're not entering the real economy. And that's a big difference between QE and BTFP. Interesting. So, so what, what I'm hearing here is there's, there's certainly a lot of support there. Um, and policymakers uh, and, and senior bankers are looking to be very proactive here. I'm curious, and Greg would love to bring you in here, on your guys' thoughts around First Republic. We obviously heard uh, before the weekend, I think it was, that there was going to be $30 billion injected into it by a number of large banks. And yet post that, we still saw it trade down, what is it, like close to 50% yesterday. So like, what, what does the market need to see to get comfortable that the support that's been provided is going to be sufficient? Greg, you, maybe you go first. Yeah, that's a good question. I think going back to your earlier uh, point about the market rallying after Bear Stearns and then running into more trouble, I think... You know, what we've learned is 
these are very uncertain situations. And, you know, although it can look like the dust clears um, in a day or a week, that's that's rarely the situation. Um, and I think we're seeing that with First Republic right now. Uh, you know, the the both the government and the banking industry has uh, done a number of different things to try to stabilize that situation. But at the end of the day, uh, this is a crisis of confidence. And, you know, when confidence comes back uh, is, is really anybody's guess. Um, you know, unless they they get some capital infusion that sort of puts all those questions to to rest. Um, so I, I think you know that's what I'm waiting to see at least. David, how about you? Anything anything to add? I think uh, Greg said it right. You know, I, I mean, I'm looking at markets right now, and I think a lot of the reaction we're getting tends to be more uh, kind of relief that, of course, we've been finding solutions to this stuff, but even today, you can see that, you know, like First Republic's uh, stock price isn't normalizing quite as quickly as anyone thought. If anything, it's still moderately weaker because people are asking questions about like, well, why is this still happening? Why did, you know, 11 banks seem to step in with $30 billion to kind of uh, offer support to it? You know, like we talk amongst ourselves because we're pretty familiar with what's happened. We understand like the, the duration problem between that banks often have with regards to deposits versus the assets that they purchase. But I think the average person isn't quite as familiar with that kind of stuff. So it's still kind of creating a lot of uncertainty from the consumer side of things. And I think that sentiment has yet to really kind of impact markets here. So it's, that's something I'd still be cautious about in the short term. Yeah, de definitely something to watch. What will be encouraging is that First Public Bank shares jumped 33% of the open markets just open. So may maybe maybe what, what people are doing is um, is helping and, and it's inspiring some more confidence. So, but yeah, one to, uh, one to watch. Um, so moving on to DeFi, um, that uh, parallel banking system that is being created. Um, Sid, what have you been watching this week? Um, yeah, a few things uh, of note this week. One was uh, the, we covered this in last week's call, but there was a pretty significant hack of Euler Finance, which is one of the lending uh, protocols that uh, was kind of growing in traction in DeFi. Um, over uh, you know almost two hundred million dollars was was stolen from the protocol, and uh, over the past week, basically, there's been communication between uh, the Euler Finance hacker and the Euler Finance team, which is uh, for folks watching on the on the slides, uh, there's an actually a uh, you can see this communication happening on chain, which is very remarkable. It's it's also an exact you know an example of uh, you know maybe first examples of of you know successful on chain communication um, uh, between two parties. Um, and uh, uh, effectively, the Euler team had sent a message to the exploiter saying, you know, please return the funds. You know, we have a bounty out. We try to negotiate with them, etc. And uh, uh, as of yesterday, the, the hacker responded back saying, you know, we, we do want to actually speak to them and, and establish a secure line of communication. Um, as of, you know, March 18th, a few days ago, uh, the hacker did send back 3000 Ether back to the Euler uh, finance team, uh, which is just around like six, five, 5.5 to $6 million. Um, but, you know, it's still a very tiny part of the $200 million haul that they took home. Um, so, it's kind of a mixed bag situation because the, the hacker has been doing all kinds of things with the funds. They've been sending some of them to Tornado Cash, 
that we've seen on chain. Um, and then at the same time, they're also trying to establish lines of communication uh, with the with the Euler team. So we'll see how the situation resolves, but something we're keeping an eye on because it's obviously a significant portion of user funds that have been lost. So, so just for those that are listening on podcast, can you read exactly what the communication was and describe how they communicated? Yeah, so uh, basically the you know the, the exact communication that they that they stated was we want to make this easy on all those affected no intention of keeping what is not ours uh, setting up secure communication let us come to an agreement uh, that's what the hacker sent to the Euler finance team uh, and this was communicated on chain via a transaction where you can send messages on ethereum uh, by encoding data in the transaction that you send so they effectively just sent sent a zero eth transaction to the Euler finance team uh, and uh, encoded this message in the transaction. And this is visible on public block explorers like Etherscan if, if folks want to go and check it out. Um, so pretty remarkable. Super interesting. So is that is that similar to what some of the decentralized social apps are using, like Farcaster, et cetera, where it's, it's wallet to wallet and, and they've just made a UI around that communication, which is, is far cleaner? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then they just kind of bundle up transactions so that the messaging is more efficient. Obviously, sending it per ETH transaction is pretty expensive to send messages on the main Ethereum chain. So uh, these services just try to make it a bit more efficient. Got it. So that was a, a 10 to $30 message, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting to see uh, see them communicating like that. Um, is that a first? Has anyone, has anyone been like, if they had like a, a, a discourse back and forth like this previously, like between hackers and, and projects? Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. It's it's like even for the several of the hacks that happened last year, there has been you know examples of discourse. The famous one is uh, uh, victims reaching out to some of these hackers and ask for their funds back, and some of these hackers have actually sent some nominal funds back. So it's been interesting to see uh, you know uh, situations like this play out. But uh, this is one of the biggest incidents where the hacker themselves have has responded back on chain, looking to you know collaborate um, because. Uh, Obviously, they don't. It's 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 one of the ways where you can kind of pseudonymously communicate because um, you know you don't reveal your identity, uh, you don't you know go on any centralized communication platforms, uh, but at the same time broadcast your interest in collaborating. So, one to, uh, one to watch. Um, what else? Uniswap V four was delayed. I think it was a couple of weeks ago now, but there's been a bit going on, so we haven't covered it. What what's the, the background there, and 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 what's I guess what's going to happen next? Yeah, they haven't released too much details on it, but uh, the general kind of picture that's forming is potentially Uniswap v4 is just kind of an evolution of Uniswap v3, where uh, drawing on the ideas popularized by DYDX is to have some sort of uh, off-chain order book type settling mechanism uh, so that it scales a lot more. But remains to be seen, you know, the exact details and how that will play out and whether that will even be the case. Uh, but uh, you know, obviously they're trying to scale a bit more and uh, having everything on chain is is kind of a limit on that scaling factor, right? Because you're limited by the chain that you're on. Um, and speaking of the chains that they're on, uh, we spoke about this a few calls back as well, but uh, Uniswap V3 is now also officially on BNB, on the Binance Smart Chain. Uh, so they're on the, that the protocol itself is, is kind of the dominant DEX protocol now on, on multiple chains. So we'll see how that uh, plays out. Also, also coming to base as well, which is great. Uh, Ave as well. So looking forward to, to seeing them there. Just just going back to your Arbitrum comments earlier on in the call. Um, I guess now they've released a token. 
what do you think is going to happen to, I guess, the amount of volume that is is on Arbitrum? Because I, I guess skeptics would say there was a ton of volume on GMX because they wanted to get the airdrop. Post to 23rd, airdrop comes, like we're, we're going to see selling pressure, I'm sure. Like, do, do, we, do we expect to see that volume sustain on Arbitrum? Is the product that good? Or, or, or perhaps will, will we see volume go elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so even with the token launch announcement, they did, uh, the team, the off-chain labs team stated that 1.1% of the token supply would go to DAOs in Arbitrum. Uh, so they probably will be boosted with some extra incentives to give to users to you know retain stickiness moving forward. Uh, and then uh, to your point of will the volumes go elsewhere, the GMX in particular has kind of seen a lot of stickiness and also user interaction and, and uh, social interaction as well. There's been the popular, you know, big GMX short publicly broadcast and a lot of folks have been following that whale, uh, the whale trader that, that did that. Um, so I think probably, you know, that kind of activity continues to stay. It's not necessarily that Arbitrum, the underlying rollup is technically that much superior, but uh, just the products that have been built on it and the traction that's already been achieved, it's, uh, you know, we might see some level of stickiness there, similar to how, you know, Uniswap stickiness effect, you know, um, where users just kind of stick with it despite potentially better incentives elsewhere. Interesting. So, so the GMX sure, I guess that the GMX token is up basically north of 100% uh, on the year, which which on a, in a challenging year is, is pretty impressive. So there's someone that's sure on chain very publicly yeah, not on the GMX token itself, but on on BTC and ETH, uh, like levered short positions, uh, and they broadcast it on Twitter. And uh, so many people are following them. We're trying to liquidate them, etc. And uh, and you know it hasn't happened yet. So that's a, that's 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 a brave game, I have to say, um, to be uh, short and, and very public about it like that. Um, in terms of the Arbitrum pricing, Greg, I know you've been looking at this. Like, where where is this trading currently? Uh, appreciate different exchanges have different um, different prices and volumes on high, but yeah. So there's two exchanges um, so far that have listed derivative contracts. Um, there's not a ton of volume, uh, so it's hard to say you know how um, well they're pricing the market. Uh, additionally, the, the the spread between the two exchanges is uh, about ten miles wide. Um, one exchange has the token uh, priced at uh, just above a dollar. Um, another one, you know, has it closer to $10. So, um, you know, I think optimism's a, a good comp. Um, I haven't run the numbers, uh, yet, but, um, uh, it'll be interesting to see where this trades, uh, once the airdrop happens. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, that, that large gap will probably get closed very, very quickly. I'm sure, um, yeah, it does feel 10 miles has probably felt about right there. Um, so Greg, sticking with you here, trade flows, what has been going on? It was a quieter weekend, uh, thankfully, some folks managed to get some rest, but a very busy week. Yeah, it was a quieter weekend, um, but volumes on exchange still continue to be at, at very healthy levels. Um, and given this has been a Bitcoin story, um, it's not surprising that we see Bitcoin flows, if we go to the next slide here, uh, make up almost 40% of total flows. And this is the highest I can ever remember uh, seeing it. So, you know, it, it just goes to um, show just how concentrated uh, the interest is right now in the market. Um, now, the biggest question is obviously, will this rally continue? And if so, you know, how will it continue? Meaning will it continue to be led by Bitcoin? 
Um, you know, personally, I would like to see ETH catch up and start to outperform um, only because to have a healthy bull market, uh, you really need broad based gains. Um, now we're starting to see that this morning, um, you know, ETH is up uh, significantly. So we might just kind of be getting into this. Um, but, you know, we have the Fed coming up uh, this week. And as David said, uh, there's a lot of different paths they can take. And I don't think you can overstate the importance of this meeting um, for the economy or just for our market. Um, you know, we also talked about narratives around QE, um, financial stability, and kind of how this meeting goes and how the market receives it um, will, will help, you know, a lot of those different narratives either play out or, or fizzle. Um, and, you know, when we look at positioning going into this um, you know, meeting, it doesn't help much either. Positioning is a little hazy right now. Uh, it looks like the market's marginally long when we look at futures. April uh, Bitcoin basis is about, you know, plus eight, nine percent. ETH is, you know, plus six, seven percent. But when we look at per funding rates across all coins, those are mostly negative. So there's not one clear trend here. Um, and really sets us up for uh, a number of different outcomes, you know, given uh, that, or depending rather on, on how this meeting goes. Now, yeah. on our desk, um, you know, the flows have really mirrored what we've seen in the price action. You know, BTC is again a favorite. Uh, we're seeing less interest in your typical altcoins, um, but nearly every client segment was net to to buy last week and in decent size. So, you know, that's traditional hedge funds, crypto native hedge funds, traditional and crypto asset managers, private wealth. Um, we saw a number of clients that hadn't been active in a while come back into the market. So, you know, these are all you know, very positive things, um, but there's a, a few hurdles we have to get over first before we can uh, say it's all clear. Yeah, I feel like the, the one thing is certain it's, it's going to be most likely volatile uh, direction of travel is uh, it's harder to predict unfortunately <laughs> great well that is a wrap for this week um if you listen to the podcast don't forget to subscribe uh, and if you watched it don't forget to scan the qr and check out all of our great research with that we'll see you next week thanks for listening all statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording this recording is only intended for sophisticated investors this recording should not be copied distributed published or reproduced in whole or in part Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.